This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I am Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of Lonnie's Discount Muffler and Ribs Studio in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We've got a uh, newscast coming up for you in just a little bit, plus a special interview with journalist Rachel Cohen. We're going to take a deeper dive into one of the stories this week related to Speaker Pelosi's priorities in Congress, so stay tuned for that. We're also monitoring the House Judiciary Committee's uh, first impeachment hearing featuring testimony from four constitutional lawyers, Sam's favorite profession. I was just telling Sam how I'm very glad that I'm not a Constitution guy. And at this point, you just have to have Chris Hayes' baby brain if you're anywhere on the left and you think that the Constitution is a thing to uphold. Like, by all means, challenge laws you don't like in court. Like, use whatever means you have at your disposal. But to venerate it like it's some sort of magical document in this day and age, in this economy, <laughs> it's just, what, what the hell, man? What the hell? Something we didn't... Whoa, I just don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Chris Hayes. Uh, Something we didn't get to yesterday because it broke just after we finished recording. Kamala Harris has ended her campaign. That's right. It's... uh, I, I... Here we are. Yeah, I'll eat some crow on this one as someone who predicted that Kamala Harris would be uh, the main challenge to Bernie Sanders winning the primary... Uh, I will say that that came from a deeply cynical place. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 it's still obvious there's going to be a moderate who will be challenging uh, Bernie in this primary. That will be Bernie's biggest obstacle. I mean, right now it's still Joe Biden. Well, I assume that Joe Biden wouldn't be lasting as long as he has lasted here. Uh, I still believe he won't be lasting as long as he will last when I made my Kamala Harris prediction, there was no Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Pete Buttigieg seems to be uh, the guy who's going to benefit most from Kamala uh, not being in the race. He'll scoop up some of those more moderates. And I also didn't uh, predict that Elizabeth Warren would campaign as well as she's campaigned so far and uh, uh, placed herself in sort of this top tier. I assumed that she would be a middling candidate throughout. So uh, yeah, I was wrong about Harris. I guess one thing to look for in the coming days, uh, coming weeks, I guess, is will Harris dropping out sort of trigger a uh, a dropout race among the more fringe candidates? Maybe they can see what sort of deals they can get from front runners in terms of uh, uh, promises of potential positions down the line. There's talk that Harris is a possible Joe Biden VP. I could see that. Yeah, I mean, I could see that just because both of them are so deeply cynical uh, and just have, like, nothing really inspirational about them. And uh, they're both just more the same of this centrist uh, Democrat crap. I wonder, though, should Bernie... Do we think Bernie should start trying to uh, buy off some of these fringe candidates? I mean, <laughs> how much of a how much power 
are we willing to promise Andrew Yang? Look, I wouldn't mind if Bernie <laughs> did the Trump move and how Trump gave Ben Carson uh, housing secretary. I wouldn't mind if Bernie did that to Yang. <laughs> Yang, is, Yang is shady. We shouldn't trust Yang, but there's a lot of other ghouls in this primary and I don't know, put Yang at some cabinet position to get all the Yang gangers on board. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I, be completely opposed to that. I mean, I'm being I, half serious here. No, I, I same here. And like Yang is not uh, anywhere near the top of my list in terms of people I would want to see in well, the federal government. Well, there is no list. Oh, yeah, go ahead. But uh, sometimes you just have to uh, play some of the cynical games that are played. And I don't think it should be beneath Bernie to promise some like fucking nothing position to Andrew Yang, like small business administrator. Yeah, that's a good one. That's like good there, one. there are so many positions in the government that need to be filled. And a lot of them are, let's face it, bullshit. A lot, most, a lot of them aren't, to be clear. I don't want to sound like Grover Norquist or anything. Yeah. But there are a lot of bullshit positions in the government and- Fuck it, Bernie. Make Andrew Ma- Andrew Yang uh, Secretary of Math or something. <laughs> uh, Yang's UBI is not anywhere near sufficient of what it should be. It is a it is a, a garbage proposal meant to replace portions of the social safety net rather than supplement it. Um, there are a lot of reasons to be distrustful of Yang, but he's not. I don't think Yang is a crypto libertarian like I originally thought. If you hear the way Yang talks about. Um, mass population movement from low-lying flood areas to higher areas that's definitely a big government type of guy right there pushing those policies (laughs) that is not a crypto libertarian pushing a lot of this stuff so certainly would be better people but uh if it gets yang out of the race and gets his support over to bernie also give warren treasury secretary let's uh let's end this right now yeah sounds good all right it's wednesday december 4th 2019 here's the news the trump administration set a deadline to move forward with plans to take food stamps from hundreds of thousands of people officials said today that their proposed rule would take effect in april of next year in february of this year the department of agriculture first unveiled the proposal pertaining to the time limits on food stamps for so-called able-bodied adults without dependents that's means test speak for poor jobless people with no kids Basically, the proposed rule would make it harder for states to request waivers on these time limits capping food stamps to jobless, childless adults. Today, USDA estimated this would prevent 688,000 people from getting SNAP benefits. The agency expects this to save the government a paltry $1.1 billion next year. This is for potentially forcing hundreds of thousands of people into starvation. We just noted yesterday the Navy is spending $20 billion on some new nuclear subs to ratchet up tensions with China. They need a down payment on that, I guess. Naturally, the Department of Agriculture was flooded with public comments decrying their cruelty. The agency basically said it didn't care. Quote, The majority of comments that were submitted generally opposed the proposed rule, but did not comment on specific provisions or provide recommendations on how to address the policy issues identified by the department. (laughs) 
I wonder how many of these were just straight up, fuck you, dude, fuck you. That's like, that's that's the uh, Department of Agriculture saying, look, if you don't have any constructive criticism to say, <laughs> then uh, don't bother saying anything Jesus at all, okay? Christ. Anyway, the uh, policy issues that were identified by the department as rationale, well, they read like they come from a 19th century book on morality. The agency said the rationale in proposing the rule is to, quote, improve economic outcomes, promote self-sufficiency, and encourage greater engagement in meaningful work activities. The agency, however, conceded that commenters provided research saying many of those who would become ineligible were, quote, low-income workers who rely on SNAP while working. Commenters also noted that many of these workers, quote, would be unable to consistently meet the work requirement due to volatility in the low-wage labor market. As we have noted on the show, the Trump administration has floated several proposals this year to tighten food stamp means testing. Millions of people stand to see their benefits reduced or taken away altogether if the rules are upheld by the courts. As Huffington Post noted today, congressional Democrats and advocates for the poor are planning on suing to stop the rule changes. Though our judiciary is full of fancy dipshits, perhaps they will win because in late 2018, Republicans tried but failed to get these rule changes through Congress before eventually taking action at the agency level. Now, another story of a government department screwing people over. In a court filing on Tuesday, we learned more about tens of thousands of students who were defrauded by Betsy DeVos's education department. The department had initially estimated that about 16,000 students were affected by erroneous letters sent by the department demanding repayment of student oh loans. God. These were students who were defrauded by the now-shuttered Corinthian colleges and were entitled to loan forgiveness under a program set up during the Obama administration. That program, though, was later scrapped by Secretary Betsy DeVos, who moved to have the department once again shake down defrauded students for loan repayment. Her efforts, however, were stopped in May by a court injunction. The injunction was a result not of unfairness for the students, but primarily because the department broke the law by improperly sharing students' personal information to determine earnings data. That move violated the Privacy Act of 1974. An injunction was placed preventing the Department of Education from seeking loan repayment on these students. But despite the injunction, the department didn't stop trying to collect loan repayments. Uh. Thousands of students received notices from the department (laughs) that they owed money, which led to DeVos being held in contempt of court in October and fined $100,000. Now, it was initially believed that 16,000 students received these erroneous notices, but in a filing on Tuesday, the Education Department admitted that as many as 45,000 students, three times the amount, 45,000 students actually received these notices, and many of them, with great hardship, actually attempted to make the payments. Betsy, turn on the location on your yacht. We need to make sure you're okay. We need to sync that shit. (laughs) Courthouse News cited data... Courthouse News cited data seeking legal advice right now. Courthouse News cited Courthouse. Let me start over here. (laughs) Courthouse News cited data from the Project on Predatory Student Lending, finding that quote seventy five percent of students subjected to involuntary collections had to borrow money at high interest rates to cover expenses such as food, rent, childcare, and transportation. 
Some had their electric service cut off, while others reported repeated late fees of $25 to $100 for utility oh bills God, as a result of involuntary collections. Borrowers were evicted due to inability uh. to pay rent. And one individual was fired from her job after her car was repossessed because she could not make payments. Again, these are students who were already defrauded by Corinthian colleges who were entitled to having their debt forgiven under the Obama administration, who were then had that entitlement taken away by Betsy DeVos. A court ruled that it should not have been taken away. And then Betsy DeVos went ahead and tried to shake them down for money, causing even more hardships. I'm losing my mind over here. The department blamed the fraudulent repayment demands on miscommunication with its loan servicers. It claimed in a court filing that it has, quote, continued to work to improve its servicer oversight and compliance tracking. Nearly 79,000 former students of Corinthian colleges have submitted debt forgiveness applications to the Department of Education. The department is still working, though, to make sure that defrauded students are forced to repay debts. The department appealed that May injunction. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is currently considering the matter. And just as a cherry on top, a guy who is at the center of the plans to get the data illegally confirmed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Stephen Menashe. Uh, we talked about him in an earlier show about how he was making his way through the Senate. And now he's a judge for life on one of the most powerful courts uh, in the country. So that's extremely cool and chill. It gets worse. <laughs> okay, for the third story in the newscast today, we're talking about legislation pending in the U.S. House of Representatives. And for help on that, we talked with journalist Rachel Cohen. In the slow buildup to next year's presidential election, House Democrats have been trying to make the case for the party with their For the People agenda. But a recent report from The Intercept this week highlights how Democratic leaders are sitting on a bill that would dramatically change labor law in a way that could vastly improve the lives of millions of people around the country. Not only that, but the Protecting the Right to Organize Act has broad support among House Democrats and many of the party's supporters in the labor movement. Joining us to explain what's going on is the author of The Intercept piece, journalist Rachel Cohen a contributing writer for The Intercept and The Washington City Paper. You can find her on Twitter at RMC031. Thanks for coming on the show, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So uh, first of all, could you explain what's in the Protecting the Right to Organize Act and why labor unions are so supportive of it? Yeah, so the bill, it's really, uh, I mean, it would be the biggest rewrite of labor law in decades it sort of has a almost a laundry list of, of just things that unions and the labor movement have been wanting to see for a long time it basically applies to the private sector workforce although there's another bill in congress um that is sort of geared towards fixing the public sector labor law um but the pro act the protecting the right to organize act um, it does a lot of things. It would eliminate right to work uh, laws. It would impose new penalties on employers who try to, you know, fire union organize fire uh, workers for organizing unions. It would um, take on the explosion of classifying workers as contract independent contractors instead of staffers. Um, it would also impose new rules on like how fast a company has to 
come to the table to bargain a contract if they're com- if their workers form a union. Um, and that's honestly, there's even more in the bill than that. So when you say decades, uh, just to give some yeah. historical perspective for people who might not uh, necessarily be aware of labor history in this country, you're referring to the last major rewrite of labor law was Taft-Hartley, uh, which happened in 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act. That was sort of at the start of kind of a Cold War hysteria, and uh, it dramatically rolled back some of the labor rights that had literally just been gained the decades, uh, the decade before. And many labor leaders in this country believe that this bill is is the main reason why union density is so low uh, in America compared to other industrialized countries. And that's why the PRO Act, stuff like the PRO Act is seen as so uh, crucial. Did I get that right, more or less? Yeah. No, I mean, and that's, and I know, I think we're probably going to get to this later, but I think just to give a little bit of um, context, there have only been two other opportunities since the Taft-Hartley Act in the ni- in the late 40s when Democrats have had the chance to try to fix labor law. Um, and one of those was in 1978. That was the last, that was uh, when there was Democratic control in Washington. And the other time was in 2009. And in both times, Democrats failed. Like they got close to varying degrees to pass reforms to strengthen unions and sort of try to correct from some of the uh, bad aspects of Taft-Hartley and they failed. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of hope that maybe that Democrats will have their next chance in 2021. Um, Obviously that, you know, take like, uh, like that could go wrong, but basically there, there have only been two real windows when Democrats had the chance to really transform labor law since that time. And they failed both times. And so now everyone's hoping that they will get it right in their next chance and it, that would really mean in a lot of ways passing this bill so in two th- in 2009 uh, was the fight over efca the employee free choice act a major priority for labor groups who pushed for the election of barack obama barack obama signaling that he would push for this proposal that he would be uh on the picket lines of union actions and then it never materializing there uh this time around Nancy Pelosi, as you report, is instead trying to push the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement deal, which would actually undermine a lot of labor protections instead. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like the the AFL-CIO wants a trade deal like there. It's not like labor isn't interested in a trade deal, but I think labor is also very worried about Democrats and, you know, just the federal government rushing through a trade deal to show that, um, you know, that they can get something done and then leading to all the same problems that NAFTA had and weak enforcement of labor laws. And like, there could be a good trade deal in theory, but the idea of sort of um, the, the Democrats in Congress who are very antsy to get something done, it feels pretty obvious that they are much more, um, like they're prioritizing sort of re-election in competitive districts 
over you know the concerns that labor has about how would this actually work is that really the driving thing that is uh keeping dim leaders from moving this through the house i mean it the the bill has 217 co-sponsors uh, at least it did uh earlier this week uh when your when your story came out and that's that's one co-sponsor shy <laughs> of a majority of house members uh for those who aren't aware of the math is it really just this this cowardice of well, I mean, maybe cowardice isn't the right word. Is it is it the concern of the uh, the marginal districts? Is it the how much do you think that the Democratic Party's pandering to to donors, is, uh, corporate moneyed interests, is coming into play here too? Yeah, and I mean, and just so you know, because not everyone I think may realize this, but um, like Nancy Pelosi and. Uh, and I think Steny Hoyer, like, or like the number one, number two um, members don't even co-sponsor bills generally. So, you know, if you bring it to the floor, you already have more votes than even just the number of co-sponsors. Because mm-hmm. presumably Nancy Pelosi would vote for it if it were, that came up. Um, but no, it's like, I don't, they, their office didn't say why they're not bringing it to a, a vote. No one's, no one's really commenting or being clear. So we can't say... For sure, people are just sort of speculating. But what we can say for sh- what what I think is not speculating speculative, and what you can say for sure is that um, she's not talking about it. She's not even saying it. She wants to get it done, and she is saying she wants to get trade done. She is saying she wants to get drug pricing done, um, and so it just sends a message like that. It's not, you know, you know, the, I, the generous sort of more sympathetic view is well. There's just so much going on, and. And so, you know, it's not that they don't care anymore. It's just like bandwidth issues and there's only so much you can do. But it's also, even if you couldn't get it done, if you still say that it is a priority for you to get, like there's nothing stopping them from saying, we want to get it done. We are going to do everything in our power to get it done. That's also what they say about impeachment. They say like, oh, we would love to wrap up impeachment by the end of the year. And no one knows if they will be able to do that, but that doesn't stop them. From saying it so i guess what i'm saying is like they have not come out and said we don't want this but the fact that they're but the fact that uh the top nancy pelosi is saying nothing also speaks kind of loudly in this moment you know well, the the political considerations of pelosi have always confused me here she she seems to be arguing according to your piece that by passing the the trade deal it'll allow democrats in competitive districts to go back home and say that they did something here's something tangible and i guess that this trade deal is something that if passed by the house could be approved by the senate and signed by the president implemented here so you would have some tangible uh, accomplishment whereas the the pro act which is opposed by the chamber of commerce it would pass the house not go anywhere and therefore denying her members the chance to say they did something even though we've seen pelosi push legislation already that won't pass the Senate and won't be passed and won't be signed uh, by the president. At the same time, the Democrats are trying to impeach this president while trying to deliver him a signature legislative accomplishment. (laughs) Do do any of these disconnects like fall on? I mean, is there any acknowledgement of these competing political interests in Pelosi's strategy? No, and it makes sense. I mean, and just to clarify, like the... 
so a lot of a lot of the art the theory that oh we need to move this to give vulnerable members a win a lot of that is being led by sherry bustos who is the chair of the DCCC or democratic congressional campaign committee and um and and like centrist democrats like henry cuellar who is one of the only democrats of the house to not be a sponsor on the pro act um which is you know revealing um he, he but, voted for with Trump the majority of the time yeah. last Congress. I just thought I would uh, insert that fun little yeah. factoid about Henry Cuellar. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree. I mean, I had people respond to my piece yesterday and they were like, well, why would they do that if it's not going to pass the Senate? It's like, well, why are you impeaching him? If it's not, you know, why are you doing anything? Why yeah. pass the bill unless a Republican's going to vote for it? And it just that the logic is so inconsistently applied across everything they do that it really makes your head explode. <laughs> I I suppose there is, um, I mean, the end of the year is always a good time to try to get something passed because there's uh, so much thing. There's so many things that Congress is trying to do uh, before the new year that you can tack it on and, and just sort of uh, get it through with, with minimal grumbling. I suppose Democrats technically have, um, you know, they have until the end of next Congress to pass this, even if only symbolically. Sure. But we've seen, as as we noted, the, the the House Democrats disappointed the labor movement on EFCA in two thousand and nine, and that was that was a pretty much an open goal uh, for them. They they really that was, it was a tap in, I guess, in uh, in soccer terms. But my point is that. Is there like a sense here in anyone you're talking to in the labor movement that we're dealing with a sort of fool me twice, shame on me situation? Are labor unions uh, preparing, as far as you know, are they preparing to retaliate against House Democrats if they if they don't do anything for them yet again? Yeah, so I was, you know, I, I asked a bunch of unions and most of them were kind of like, you know, trying to be cautious because they didn't, you know, they're sort of, like, uh, uh, you know, they, but the, but the CWA was, was actually the most frank. And they were like, we, we've made it very clear to house leadership that we're going to be very upset if they don't prioritize this. And, and, you know, we, and they made the point that the communication worker, like union members have come to bat for all these other house priorities over the past two years, like saving the ACA and fighting Trump tax cuts and, and, you know, all of these, and even drug pricing bills and all these things that, you know, help provide advocacy support. And they were like, this is the chance, like, you need to also stand up for us. Like, this is, yes. And I, cause you're right. They can, Pelosi could come out and say, she could come out and say, just unfortunately, we don't have time in the next month, but it's absolutely my priority. It's going to be the first thing we do in 2020. Or like, this is going to be our first, you know, she could say that, but she's not saying that either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's sort of like this, feeling where I think labor unions are are worried. And, and one thing that, um, you know, Dan Maurer from the CWA said was like, if you want to galvanize union activists going into 2020, like the PRO Act is how you do it. Like that's, uh, Dave Weigel I saw made this point on Twitter yesterday, which is like, the best way to campaign is to say, if you elect us, we'll be able to pass this into law. <laughs> like help, you know, we've already passed this in the House. Now we just need to flip the Senate, like vote for us and we'll get it done. And so there's this whole the whole logic that we can't that it's not worth doing unless you can um, already 
legislated in 2020 is is so dumb because you can just say you could pass it in the house in 2020 and then spend all of 2020 or you could pass in the house in 2019 and then sp- spend the next year campaigning for the election saying help us turn out to flip the senate so we can make it into law in 2021 you know yeah i, I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be an overt threat of retaliation but not moving uh pro could just depress uh, rank and file enthusiasm for the Democratic Party. Well, and after 2016, that seems like the opposite of what you want to do. It seems like the PRO Act is the perfect sort of bill to try and run on uh, in 2020 to get working class folks who maybe uh, weren't inspired to vote for Hillary Clinton because she really wasn't offering them anything to turn out for the polls for whoever the Democratic candidate is. Rachel, uh, in your piece, you uh, interview Pramila Jayapal, the co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus. You get a comment uh, from her. And just as we talked about how there's, I guess, not an endless supply of goodwill from labor for Pelosi, that they will notice this as a as a snub if this bill isn't moved. I'm curious how progressive members of Congress will react to this. Uh, Jayapal says in the piece, quote, I don't know exactly what the holdup is. It is taking longer than it should, given the number of co-sponsors that we have. Many other bills have come to the floor with fewer co-sponsors than this one. I didn't talk to her like you, so it's hard to judge her tone, but I read it as a tone of annoyance. Uh, Jayapal and other progressives supported Pelosi for speaker when she was being challenged, when Pelosi needed Jayapal's support. Uh, There were indications that Jayapal felt as though in return she might get a Medicare for all vote or something in in this session of Congress. It doesn't look like that's ever going to happen. How long until there are consequences for Pelosi from her left flank in Congress? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I I definitely also felt like, I mean, I I picked up on definitely a tone of frustration um, from her. They... So the, uh, two weeks ago, um, the Progressive Caucus dedicated a whole hour on the floor to to basically give speeches on why Pro Act needs to come to a vote. And uh, Jayapal and Pocon, uh, Mark Pocon, the other co-chair, said like, you know, they've been hearing, yeah, they've been hearing a lot of um, from unions. Like, it's a priority that they're sort of, you know, they they're under pressure to deliver that they want to deliver because both for policy and politics reasons. Um, I think we're at this, I think we're at the point where it's like, if she keeps saying nothing, then she really is going to invite risk, you know, invite opportunity for pushback right now. Because right now you have Diabol trying to be sort of respectful and saying, well, I I believe they, I, I think they still support it, but I have no idea what's going on. And so if Pelosi wants to avoid a, backlash from the left flank, then she's going to have to actually get more specific, either 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 bring it to a floor, either bring it to a vote soon or give an actual time of when that would be. And so far, she's just not done that. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you can find Rachel's work again at uh, the Washington City Paper and The Intercept. You can find her on Twitter at RMC031. Uh, anything else to plug since we have you on? Any maybe uh, upcoming stories that you're excited about? Any hot culture takes <laughs> about, I don't know, Billie Eilish not knowing who Van Halen is and whether or not she actually does or doesn't know who Van Halen is or anything like that? Uh, 
It's okay if you don't. I'm sorry I, I put you so. on the spot. I, I will say, I uh, Sam asked me if I'd be able to talk about the Irishman, and I I could I regretfully have not seen it yet. But. I watched it last night. <laughs> I, I watched it a few nights ago. I there are a lot of Italians in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a single Irishman in it, but yeah. Well, you're already spoiling the movie for Rachel. I will not. I will not give my hot take. Just, uh, I'm just saying, if you want to watch the movie to see a bunch of Irishmen, you're going to be disappointed. I appreciate that uh, background info. Sure. Well, Jimmy Hoffa and uh, Frank Sheeran are Irish, but uh, well, guess, Irish yeah. American. Well, played but by Al Pacino. Either way, yeah, though no, that's true. That that's true, and in fact. This is not a spoiler, but Al Pacino and uh, and uh, Robert De Niro really make no attempt whatsoever to get the regional accents down. <laughs> Danny DeVito, uh, Danny DeVito, sorry, Al Pacino playing Jimmy Hoffa, who's from uh, the Detroit area. Uh, De Niro playing Sharon, who's from Philadelphia. And, and they both just sound like they've always done in uh, every movie. It's still a good watch. It's it's worth okay. I think the four hours or so of watching. But I, yeah. it is long. I don't know if it's it, it, it actually moves pretty well. It does. It, I don't know if it's like this huge instant classic, but it's it's definitely worth watching. So I would I would set aside some time at some point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Rachel, uh, thanks again for coming yeah, on. Thank you guys. And uh, yeah, we'll 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 see you around the internet. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> Bye. Thanks again to Rachel. Before we go, just a reminder to listeners, we have a Patreon. You can help support our news co-op here in Pistown. Go to patreon.com slash district sentinel, five bucks a month. You get access to all the bonus content we put out. Plus you get your own haiku written for you and read on the air. We're going to read one right now. This is for Brian Kamala Harris. Civil Libertarian Campaign Pleads the Fifth. Thank you, Brian. And thank you to all the new subscribers. Patreon.com slash District Sentinel. That's it for the show today. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with a new newscast. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.